Welcome to the Unclassified Podcast, where we explore and talk to current and future leaders in classical music from all backgrounds in a fun, invigorating, and educational way. I'm your host, Courtney Tony, and today we will have the honor of having R. Carlos Nakai, who is the world's premier performer of the Native American flute and one of the world's most widely respected and known Native American artists. So sit back and relax and enjoy these musical notes of wisdom. Mr. Nakai, thank you so much for your time today with us. Uh, we are absolutely honored to have you as our first guest on this podcast. And I'll kick it off with the first question. You are known as the world's premier performer of the Native American flute. When you play this instrument, what does it do to you internally? And what feeling do you get playing it? I play the instrument because when I was in the military, I had damaged my embouchure enough that I could no longer play the brass instruments up to the um, quality necessary to get into uh, music schools or, in my sense, the dream of wanting to play for the National Orchestra in Washington, D.C. I got home after being discharged from active duty, and I found... A friend of mine had collected an instrument from a a trading post shop, and I was curious about it, and she told me that it was an instrument that was used by the youth people in the old days. All they knew was it was called a flute, but no one knew how to play it anymore. So that began my curiosity and wanting to understand more about it. And so when I began working with it, you know, I found many different attributes that are relevant to how uh, music performance is achieved in many of the different instruments of the standard orchestra. And so that led me to begin a research to understand it even more. And so that's what I've been doing ever since I started in 1976 and got recorded in 1984, and then began touring soon afterwards. Wow, that's fascinating. So is that the first time you had played an instrument like that? Um, Yes, I had actually begun in junior high school, as it was called way back in the mid-50s, because a principal of ours at one of the elementary schools I was going to in Poston, Arizona, decided all the farm kids, all 500 of us, could really benefit from a music program. And so he invited a friend of his in Blythe, California, up with a number of instruments, and he did checks on our embouchures or the way our mouth formation was, and then said, you're eligible to play one of these instruments. Which one do you like? And I said, well, I like the ones in the little box. Um, which ones? And I said, well, the piccolo or the flute. And at that time, um, he informed me that men did not play flutes. And so I should choose a more appropriate instrument for the male side of the music world. And I, I said, well, I don't know. I don't like that big giant thing, the sousaphone. I don't like all the other instruments. Um, he offered me a cornet. And he said, take this home, blow on it, see if you can make a sound, and then see if you might like the sound. And so that began, you know, the interest in in playing brass instruments and wanting to go to school to learn how to play 
as well as I could. After you first picked up this particular type of flute, you're doing research. And when did you decide to make this really your full-time career? Well, you know, I don't really think of it as a career. I do what I do to discover all the other possibilities of playing this instrument. Because many people had informed me, both um, traditionalists and people in the music world who were teachers and educators of various kinds, as well as anthropologists, that it's called a pentatonically based instrument. And I said, I'm really going to find out if it truly is. And it isn't. It's capable of playing all the pitches in one scale, an octave, of course. There is only a missing third, and it's because of the way the instrument is made. And so with the missing third, one has to figure out ways to get around pitches that are not playable. And I've tried what others usually try to do is um, either half-holding one of the lower um, finger holes or do the best you can to make it sound a little bit like the pitch that is missing. And, you know, and I decided, uh, no, that doesn't work too well. You have, throughout your career, sold over 50-plus albums, uh, equaling over 4 million units. So as an artist, when you look back over your 40-year-plus career, what are your thoughts? Are you in amazement of what you've been able to uh, succeed, or do you, in a sense, feel like you've just started? Well, when I began writing, and I said, I really need to understand this instrument more from what the world of the tribal use of these instruments um, had become because they don't all sound the same. So I organized the ones that I had, found that they were in, in all of the minor scales, and said, now how do I figure out without having to learn each flute and what pitches they will play? Um, fortunately, my friend at the time was learning to play the standard concert flute or the flute in C, she opened the middle of the booklet and she said, this is the fingering scale for this flute. And I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, that flute in C works like my G minor flute, um, except I don't play the side holes because there are none. I took the chart. I found that each of the flutes play in the same way with that standard fingering. And I said, well, I've got it right here. I can play any of these flutes. I began working with tuners and I found that with all the information on that little chart, I wrote a fingering tablature, which is based on the key of E. And I said, I have one fingering diagram that I can use for any of these flutes. Um, be they made in 1700 or being made um, in 2012. So that was a boon to me. And since that time, I began writing based on the fingering tablature that I had originated. I began doing melodies by either looking at or realizing what fingers I was pressing down or finding that a melody line or phrase could have many different fingering positions. And so that became my standard. 
Do you have a favorite project that you've done throughout your career? I informed the musicians I'd been working with for the past 30 years to work with me and we're going to produce another recording. It's a harp guitar player and a percussionist, a world percussionist. I said, I think I'm going full circle on this one because I want to turn out a recording that sounds like the very first one we did together in Phoenix, Arizona. So, And I'm also writing a new piece for a chamber ensemble in California that is doing a presentation on the influence of American Indian music on Dvorak and how he wrote his American symphony based on listening to native music in the Middle East. They said, we would like for you to write a piece that would complement what Dvorak would have done if he were still alive and found the sound of the Native American flute. So my piece will be premiered next year. Um, I've been able to take the instrument onto the concert stage with symphonies, premiering pieces by James DeMars, which was the very first one written for Native American flute. That one was called the Two World Concerto. And so that was premiered in, at Arizona State University. I think the latest that I can talk about is by Gary Gackstatter, who teaches in Missouri. He did a piece called Chaco. And it's based on his impressions of being in Chaco Canyon with his father years ago and realizing the importance of that environmental region and the impact it had on him. And he said, would you be willing to play flute for this and adapt some native traditional either ceremonial or personal songs to the piece? And I said, yes, I would. It'll move this instrument up one more level. Do you have any favorite composers of Native American descent, people that have inspired you along the way? Lewis Ballard. I heard him when I was collecting the stacks for my father's radio program. I heard his songs and I said, wow, this is really neat. Here's an American Indian, you know, who is writing classical music. I said, that would be something to do. How do I do it? The original solo melodies that I write are all based on how he wanted people to take the traditional melodies and develop them a little bit more and find a way to either record them or present them to the world at large. And I was lucky enough to meet him. He encouraged me, you know, to stay with the native flute. Um, don't do anything else. Um, just go to night school and, and try to complete the rest of your um, studies in theory and, and performance. And then, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. And I've been doing that ever since. I would say one of the people that I performed one of his pieces, Brent Michael Davids is one. When I met him first, I said, come and help me. We're doing an event over here at the Grand Canyon and trying to get the um, native kids from the Hopi and Navajo and, and surrounding tribal communities to write three-part harmony. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, so come over, you know, and, and see what you can do. And he's been doing that ever since. 
And in fact, those young natives performed in Washington, D.C. and got a special award one year. And it's like, okay, okay. It's so awesome to hear about um, your connection with him and, and the great work that, um, that you all are doing, you know, especially for the younger generations coming up. I think that's just so inspirational. In all of the American Indian culture, there's a saying that is, that is always given to us, and it's when you go out in the world, you've got to remember to always be of service to others. And as musicians, you know, I think that's what we do. And as composers of music, both on the serious music level and on the popular level, and even the personal level, is we are always attempting to encourage young people. This is a very viable and important component of the fine arts of the United States, and you should be doing this too. It'll help represent your tribe, your community, and the history of American Indian peoples on North American soil. And of course, I also realize that musicians are one of the most dangerous um, activities one can have. <laughs> we can be very political <laughs> to very romantic, so... Uh, for me, I've always been of service to the music. And so to mm -hmm. be able to hear that that is um, what you guys, you know, in the Native American culture grow up knowing to be of service, um, yeah. I think that's just so, it's so needed. And it's something that I think is definitely missing in today's world. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that concerns me in the world today is that many younger Native people are abandoning the old histories. And of course, the histories of tribes and communities and individuals are all personal in nature. So there is no general American Indian history. And so being quite involved in family is a very important component because, you know, being in a matrilineal community, the stories of the grandmothers are probably the most important information we can ever carry into the future. And to do it in music too, like I'm doing with my honoring song, you know, and like um, um, Lewis Ballard has done, and even with uh, Mr. Brent, the, um, the music is all derived from that history. And it's not all good. There are stories of suffering and travail and hardship. And once in a while, we'll do a nice sounding piece. That history of survival through time is probably the most important instrument anyone can carry. Um, and the information that is contained in that instrument of personal history is something that you can never lose unless you give it away. Is there a special place growing up that connected you to the music in the very beginning of your career? Or what brings you solace when you're recording or performing? Well, a lot of it deals with memory, um, remembering of being in place at various times in my life. You know, I really enjoy going to Central Park and even being down on, you know, one of the major streets there, let's say um, on Fifth Avenue in the financial district and listening to people and remembering that I heard this tune when I was listening. 
and I want to write it down. So I always carry um, manuscript paper with me or a little tape recorder. I still haven't learned how to record on my telephone, but when I do, then that'll be a boon. I grew up in a number of different communities, and as Athabascans, we share our children within the family, extended family group, let's say. And so I grew up in Poston, Arizona, the site of a former Japanese internment camp. And I was influenced by the last grocer who was in Poston before my uncle was sent there by the government to tear down the old buildings. And he gave me a whole history of his life of being a California Japanese native. And he said, you never let anyone tell you whom you are. He says, you have your own self-respect. And when you get older, you will learn that. I also was born in a small town called Flagstaff in Arizona. We spent most of our times out in the pine forests and in the scrub oak that grew around that region. And we heard stories by local people who were working in the region, um, Hopis, Wallapais, Havasupais, Mojaves, Chamaweve, Navajos, Utes, and many of the um, Western Pueblo, Lagunas, Acomas, you know, all working for either the city or for um, the army depot that was there. And they would always admonish our kids, don't hang around the house, go out there and see what's happening in the woods. So there's that. Being in a metropolitan area, listening to the sounds. Um, when I was teaching for a little while, hearing the sounds of children on the playground during their recess time, going and viewing images of being, let's say, at the edge of the Grand Canyon, at the edge of Canyon du Chez, at the edge of the goosenecks, of looking at Monument Valley in Utah, looking at the rock writing that occurs everywhere in the Southwest, and it allows me to think a little bit. If I were to do a song, what would I do for this particular place? And the other important thing is I also listen to animals and birds. They influence me. So it's sort of, um, I think in the old days, like with the Plains people, they said the men spent all their time looking for food. And so many of the solo flute songs that came out of that culture we're all dealing with, I'm lonely, I need to go home, I miss my children, and I miss my spouse, and I miss being in the longhouse or the teepee or the, you know, the little barabara of one kind or another. And so, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm influenced by everything that surrounds me, I guess is all I can say. I've learned so much. I'm sure, Jesse, you probably could say the same. I've learned so much from you just today and hearing about the different Native tribes that you grew up with. And what should people know about Native American Heritage Month, in your opinion? And, and what can people uh, that are not of Native American descent do to be more educated for the overall community? Everyone in America, everyone in the United States, Canada and Mexico included, all belong to an indigenous culture. There are no people who don't have one or more cultural heritages in their bloodline. In this country today, we don't look at that. 
I tell people in my lectures, you know, if we had an awareness of our heritages, some of us could have 52 outfits that we could wear at various times throughout a year to celebrate what we are. We're a multicultural community. Even American Indians, I said, we didn't originate here. Centuries ago, we came from somewhere else too. I made a button and I handed out anywhere indiscriminately. Well, my button says, America is a culture of illegal aliens. Um, it seems that the majority of our community, our society, have easily forgotten how they arrived here. We're all a throwaway culture. The majority of people who came here weren't wanted in their homelands because they were different. And being different was dangerous, you know. And then we've broken it down into two colors, white and black. And my other button says, this is white. And there's a white patch on the button and it says, you are not. It's sort of like coffee. We have the darkest espresso. And then you get a little milk and you add that milk to different amounts in coffee cups that are all lined up. And you can have the lightest, lightest tan and even the pink tan of just the milk itself all the way down to espresso. It's the same coffee, just a little addition of one thing or another, and it's all good. So, what's the beef? <laughs> that is so true, and I love that analogy. I've, I'm just so inspired by this, and I'm so thankful to have you today to tell us more of your story and just also the wisdom that you are giving to us. And again, you've inspired me, and I'd love to ask you, who or what inspires you? I would say very simply, I'm a dreamer. I was given the right to play someone else's song and I inhabit the seven winds that are contained in that flute song by Doc Tate Nevoquai. And he was the last of the traditional flute players. There's another one that came from the Kiowa people and it's called A Song for the Morning Star. I would do my morning prayer at the, at the window facing east in our house. And the two cats would join me. And they would sit there and watch me and then look out the window. And I go, I'm doing my morning prayer. I'm looking at the morning star. And I'm watching it rise and it's turning the sky blue. All things on the planet, we can understand each other. Plants, animals, stones you know, the dust, the waters, all of that. And I think they understood what I was doing, but I was praying that the sun would come again and it would be all good in the world today. And so in that sense, I'm a dreamer. On the other sense, um, my responsibility is to let people know how I see myself in the world. And if I, I do that, um, I'm doing my awareness of, personal responsibility, one of my R's, and my understanding of being able to take care of myself and my spouse and those things around me and my friends and people I don't even know, even in the concert hall. 
And even one one of my grandmothers told me, you know, those two things are important, but there's a third one. What do you think it is? And I said, well, I don't know. She says, it's called self-respect. And nobody can give you that. Nobody on the planet. And I said, wow. So that's all I have to do? She said, yeah. But don't forget to have a good time and realize you're surrounded by a rainbow of life. There's a word or there's a phrase in the Southern Athabascan tribes that goes, it says, whatever road you travel on at this moment in your life, may it be one that's surrounded in beauty, harmony, and peace. And may you walk your own road with a cool body. Be one in peace. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, um, so I, I know you talked a bit about song uh, for the Morning Star. I don't know if you wanted to talk a bit more about what in, inspired you to write that or really what, what that song means to you. This is uh, the track, as, as you probably know, that we have on our playlist right now. Um, it's one of my personal favorites. And so, um, you know, any, anything else you'd like to share about that work? Well, according to the individual who passed it on to me, it's a song that the men would sing when they were out hunting. And if you've ever been anywhere on the Great Plains, you will know how the wind blows and all the wild grasses, you know, are moving and how you feel when you first awaken and you see the twilight. So you get up on your two feet, you drink a little bit of water, and then you sing that song. So it's actually derived from a vocal song, not a chant, that talks about, again, the blessings that we're born into, the blessings of being in the world, and the blessings of those things that surround us that we can utilize to sustain ourselves on one level or another, you know, physically, spiritually, and let's say hopefully when we talk about being in the future too. And so it's all of that at once. That's really inspiring. Thank you for telling us a little bit more about kind of the, the origin of that. I guess just in general, is there anything else that you wanted to share today? It's just been such a pleasure speaking with you. If anyone's interested in being around what, what I do and what we do and what I do as a flutist, I will appear at various places where I'm invited and do discussions, lecture and demonstration sessions about myself in the world as an American Indian person and allow people to understand that Everyone on the planet carries the same message from their grandmothers. So there's nothing special about what I need to talk about when I represent American Indian communities because everyone in the room should know that you carry the same information I do. Go talk to your mother, your grandmother, and they will inform you of why they invented you. <laughs> That is wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time today. We are just incredibly grateful. Thank you again for everything that you've done for the world of music. 
Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode with R. Carlos Nakai. Please make sure you follow us on our socials and check out our website for updated news at unclassified.com. Remember to take a moment to hear the melodies, for string music is in almost everything.